1.2 million people, about 100 or so known believers there. And uh, this little church, one little church, has now planted another, and they're planting two more. And they got this call from a a, a nine-hour drive away. God providentially moved in the lives of some Muslims who were living there. They're Iraqi refugees. And so uh, we were sent this little video just to show you what God is doing. Jim, I appreciated your prayer a minute ago for unreached people groups. And uh, just to show you with all the oppression and all the rest of that, some of the things that God uh, is doing, he's about. So watch this video. I'll come back, uh, say a few words about an upcoming trip that Greg Ryder and I are going to make. But I want you to see this and see what God's doing. Former Mullah had become something of a default leader for this group. As we gathered, he read from Ephesians chapter 5, and then our pastor spent some time explaining the passage and prayed a blessing over all the families. We spent some more time praying together, and then we concluded by taking the Lord's Supper. 
all in all, it was a pretty amazing day. Pray for this group as they continue gathering, that they would grow in their faith, that they would shine brightly as a light for Christ in the community around them, that they would love one another well. Pray for Ahmed as he learns to lead this group well. Pray for our Iraqi leader, Arkan, as he reaches out across the distance to help disciple these brothers and sisters and to minister to them as well. We are out here about nine hours from the city where we live. Uh, by car, we've been visiting with some Iraqi refugees who live in this city. Three families, about 30 people, uh, all of whom are former Shia Muslims from the city of Baghdad. I know it's so good you want to hear it again. A amen. Uh, God, God's working. And, you know, the, the gospel uh, is not leashed, Paul told Timothy. And so thank God for that. Uh, we've been working for some time to see if we could get a window in. And so, again, Greg Rader, he was on the first trip in to that particular area a long time ago. And uh, so he's going uh, with me, and we're going October 27th through November 4th. Please pray for us, pray for, pray for the church there, and that God would continue to work. We'll bring you uh, a report when we get back. But you can pray for us, and then if you feel so led, you can give to this project, and uh, we would appreciate both. I'm going to stop, and we're going to pray for them. And then we're going to stand together in just a few moments after I finish the prayer, read together God's Word. Almighty God, and you really are almighty. You move in ways that we can't even fathom. Your grace is so great. Lord, even though there are, there are barriers, there are walls, not only physically, but, but also politically, militarily. Lord, you, you permeate all of those with faithful people. Thank you that this group of people, nine hours away drive time, were able to use technology today to hear the gospel and to receive that gospel and then to, to, to begin their, their process of growth. Thank you for faithful believers, indigenous believers in Riverland like Pastor O and our Western workers that are there. God, we lift them up to you and we thank you for what they are doing. We pray that you would not just give them ease. Lord, we don't ask that, but in the midst of the pressure and the oppression, which is real and which is current, that you would help them to overcome and that they would speak the word with boldness in the presence of that affliction. So thank you, Lord, for what you are doing. Thank you that we can share this report today. Now thank you as we get to uh, look into your word again. We pray that you would teach us more about your grace and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now with that, I want you to take your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and stand with me, please, as we read God's word together. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, we'll go through verse 10. And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may be seated. There are really only two religions in the world. That's a that's a bold statement, that's a broad statement, but let me define what I mean by that. When we compare, or maybe a better word, when we contrast all of the religions of the world with biblical Christianity, we find a huge gap, a huge difference, and it boils down always to a question that a young man asked the Lord Jesus Christ one time. We find this in the Gospel of Matthew. We find it in the other Gospels as well, Luke and Mark. But we find that a young man came up to him and he said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? How do I have eternal life? How do I get to heaven or if you don't call it heaven, maybe paradise, or nirvana, or Valhalla, or wherever it is that you believe that you will exist on the other side of life and that you will live in eternal peace and happiness in the presence of whatever kind of God that you envision. And do you see it? Do you see what the young man asked that separates this out from biblical Christianity? Here's why I asked that question, because I'm afraid that in a lot of churches, and I'm talking about evangelical churches in our land, they would be puzzled as to why I would ask that question. Do you see it? The young man asks, what good deed must I do? In other words, is there a, a ritual? Is there a sacrament? 
Is there a set of rules or a path or a step that I can take, that I can perform so that I can be right before God? That's why I began by saying that there are only two religions in the world. There is, first of all, a religion represented by this. All religions except for biblical Christianity would be what we might call systems of human achievement or performance or accomplishment. It's that trusting that somehow I can do something to be righteous before God, to to tip the scales in my favor, to make sure that my good works outweigh my bad works and so I can please God and earn his favor and acceptance. That's what today's message is all about. And in fact, that's just basically an overview and a review. If you will look back on your outline, you'll see this is something that we introduced a couple of weeks ago. We went through the first sola this last week. Now, let me, in case you're new, you've come in here, this is your first time. Uh, We normally teach through books of the Bible. We take uh, a, a book of the Bible and we start at the first verse of the first chapter and we go all the the way through the the last verse of the last chapter and then we pick another book. But I I chose several weeks ago to do this, talking with the elders, we felt like this would be something good to go back and review who we are and what are some of the essentials that we believe. So we go back to the Reformation, that time in the 16th century when the church was at a place of, of darkness and and the church was teaching that you had to fulfill all of these things in order to be saved and and some people that God providentially raised up by his grace who began to read this book they began to read the Bible and they said no they didn't actually formulate these five solas that came later out of the things that they taught but you see it right there. And let's go back and just look at those. And basically, we're, we're breaking these out in each individual section, but, but basically they all go t- together. They're all intertwined. Now, here is something that I shared last week and that you've got to know, and not just in the, the Roman Catholic Church that was the church out of which the Reformers came, but also in a lot of churches today, this could be true. And and a lot of people get this wrong. I don't want you to get this wrong, going out and saying, well, the Catholics do not believe that we're saved by grace, because they do. And there are religions that do. And they would say, according to the Bible, they believe that. And they believe that you are saved by grace, through faith in Christ, for God's glory. But if you'll notice, there is one little word that I have left out that makes all the difference in the world. What word is that? The word alone. See, folks, it's not the Bible plus other writings or even, even things that have been revealed to you personally, whether or not you've written them down. It's not grace 
plus. It's not faith plus. It's not Christ plus. But all of that, what is the foundation upon which my salvation rests? It is the Word of God, the Scriptures alone. What must I earn to be saved? It is by grace, say it with me, alone. What must I do to be saved? It is by faith alone. What or who must I trust to be saved? It is in Christ alone. And what is the point? God's glory alone. So today we're looking at the second sola. And by the way, there's no particular order. A lot of people put these in different order. But I'm, I'm starting with the scriptures. That's our foundation. We talked about the grid through which you see life. Remember, students, when we talked about worldview, you always ask the question, what do you believe to someone when you're trying to engage in spiritual conversation? What do you believe? And then the second question, which is seldom asked, is why do you believe that? Everybody has a source of authority. Ours is the Word of God alone. And so last week we looked at sola scriptura, the scripture alone. Today we look at grace alone. Let's do uh, a definition of this. Um, you, you, for those of you who are note takers, I see some of you scrambling. I see some of you sitting. Either one is okay. As long as you take in the gist of what God's grace is. And various people have defined this. And so I'm not reinventing the, the wheel here. I've gone to such men as, as uh, uh, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, uh, John MacArthur. I've gone to, to a lot of different people, C.H. Spurgeon, and you'll see some quotes in your worship guide that indicate this. But let me give you kind of a, when we, we talk about this, let me compress it all and talk to you about God's grace. This is what God's grace is. Now, let me have your attention here. Students, I know that a lot of you stayed up a good part of the night last night, right? Are you with me? Nod your head if you, okay, that means yes, this means okay. They're with me. They're, they're taking notes. By the way, that does help you to stay awake. But here's my fear. I shared this in the little prayer group that we have on Sunday morning. I fear that you and I sometimes have heard so many sermons about God's grace that we become anesthetized to it. We become callous to it. We've heard that. We know that. It's old hat. What I hope today to do in, in this simple sermon is to just through the scriptures, and I, I have been praying this morning that God would do a work of grace. I don't care how passionate I am or, or what I do in the pulpit I cannot open your eyes. I cannot open your heart. It's only the grace of God that can do that. And that's what I am praying as we talk about this. So what is God's grace? It's his undeserved, unmerited favor. Uh, now, in, in some of the definitions from a, a religious point of view, notice how I'm, I'm contrasting religion from biblical Christianity. Some people look at it with the, 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 the aspect of being a favor. God does a favor for us, so we have to work to, to earn that favor. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about God's good pleasure. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. His unwarranted love showing to those who deserve 
the opposite. We'll, we'll illustrate this in a minute. It is God's initiative. God's grace is God's initiative to save sinners who cannot lift a finger to save themselves. And that's why I chose Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And we won't even get all the way through that passage of Scripture as one of the, one of the Scriptures that so beautifully gives us this hallmark of Protestant theology in terms of the commitment to the second sola, sola gratia, or the belief that we're saved by God's grace alone. Okay? Let's look at the three points that are there on your sermon outline, and let's talk all the way through them, and we're, we're going to divide it up into threes. All right, we could divide it up into other ways, but threes, that's, that's one of the easy ways to do it. And so in the first part, we're going to look at what we were before God saved us. And let me just give you a hint. You were helpless and you were hopeless. And so was I. Question. Do you need God's help to be saved or do you need God's grace? not a trick question. Do you need help to be saved or do you need God's grace? If you hesitate, this is a common thing. Don't feel ashamed. Don't feel badly if you hesitated in that because this teaching is so permeated our church that there are many people who think we can help God with our salvation. And if there were no other, there are others, but if there were no other passage of Scripture, this ought to be proof positive that, you, again, you cannot even lift the smallest part of your little finger to help in your own salvation. It is all of grace. It is of grace alone. Let me give you a summary of uh, verses 1 through 3, and I'll read through it again. You might think of, I, I've tried to alliterate so you can write these down and remember them. Four things, what you were before you were saved. And you'll know this. It says you were dead. Okay, that's the first D. You were dead. Second D, it says you were disobedient. Uh-huh. Disobedient. Where did that disobedience come from? It came from the third D. You were depraved. Now let me just give a caveat here. I don't mean to say that by being depraved that all of you are reprobates and all of you are as bad as you could be but there is a concept called depravity and we're going to see that spelled out in this passage if you didn't see it before and the last thing is that you were doomed we all were by the way all of mankind is in this condition before Christ all of the Turks in the, in the 72 million give or take million people in Turkey without Christ are in this condition. You were in this condition. I was in this condition. We all, and those outside the church. Let's just go through that summary. We were dead. We were disobedient. Did you get that? We were depraved and we were doomed. Why? Why? Why were we all of that? You got it. Yes. Let me just walk you through that. Okay? And you were 
dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, following the course. Now listen to this. This is the disobedience, the course of this world. And so you followed the course of the world. Maybe not 100%, but you did follow the primary course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Whoa. Everybody outside of Christ is a follower of Satan. The spirit, in case you're wondering, who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's your second D. So you're dead, you're disobedience because of your trespasses and sins. But look at this. Here's what it comes out of. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So it came out of that sense of depravity, a total fallenness of our whole being, leading up to our doom. Children of wrath, even as the rest. Folks, that's what we were, and that's what we did. Here's how... Here's how this has been engineered to infect church. Adults, maybe older adults, you've been through this. You've weathered some of these attacks that are out there. We need to pray for our students because they are under attack with these things. Social engineering does not happen all at once. It comes with verbal engineering first. You change the words, you change the concepts. Pretty soon you end up where you do not want to be. And so there are many people, maybe some in this congregation today, and because of what you've been taught before, maybe in churches, you've been taught that man at his core is good. Now, now seriously, and, and for those of you who are older, again, you've weathered the storms and you've seen this over and over again. And so through your life, you realize this, but our, our students are being hammered with this concept because this is the teaching. This is the world's way. Man is basically good. And it's either economic or it's political or whatever else goes wrong, a wrong upbringing. And we... we We fall into a victim mentality, and that's why people go wrong. And Paul says that is not the reason. Paul does not soften the reality. So let me just ask you a question. This is rhetorical. You know the answers to these, so just answer back. Were you sick in your sins or were you dead? Were you drowning in your sins or were you drowned? I've shared this before. Some of you have heard it. It's okay if you hear it again. I grew up on hymns. There are many good hymns that I've known and loved and sung in the past. And then I realized as I got older, oh, the theology in those hymns. And there are some newer songs in the theology. We, we have to watch that. But there was an old song that I grew up on. That The first line went like this. Some of you could sing it along with me. I'm not going to sing. I'll just quote it. I, well, I can't help but sing it. It just comes out. 
I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Do you guys know this? No, okay. No, some do, some do, okay. Very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. Now wait! According to the Apostle Paul, what's wrong with that song, the theology of that song? Now, time out. I realize that if we're talking about a saved person who is working out his salvation, that could be totally different. But folks, if we're talking about that was our condition before Christ, then that is absolutely inaccurate according to what Paul says in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. We weren't sinking, we were sunk. No kidding. There was no good in throwing out the lifeline. We couldn't wiggle that much of our little finger to reach out and grasp the lifeline. Why? Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had already sunk. We were at the bottom of the ocean. The fish and whatever else, the crabs, had already eaten our flesh. We're just bones at the bottom of the sea. And I've had some take issue with that. So I just ask you this. If dead really doesn't mean dead, then what does made alive really mean? If dead doesn't really mean dead, no great miracle is needed. You just need a helper. You don't need a savior. I visited in my lifetime so many hospitals or in the homes of people who were on their deathbed. And I've reached out and held the hand of people who were maybe days or some, sometimes even hours, literally minutes from passing away. And do you know what I felt? And sometimes it, it was not always the same, but whenever, listen, whenever I grasped their hands, I felt life. Even if their hand was cool to the touch, even if their hand was ashen white, there was life. I've been to a lot of funerals, and I've conducted many funerals. And I've walked up to the open casket in many of those funerals, as I know some of you have, and some of you who've lost loved ones, and I've put out my hand onto the hand of that person who just days before was alive. It was a totally different feeling. No life. We're not talking about someone who is sick and needs medicine. Or someone who is sinking and needs a lifeline. We're talking about a person, and this is every one of us, and our children, people in our families that, that we wonder about. If, if they're not in Christ, they are spiritually dead. 
They need a miracle. And that's what you needed. And for the great majority of the people in here, that's what you got. So let's look at verses 4 through 7. What we are because of what he has done. And let me just ask it this way, please, please. Are you religious or are you alive? Do you know a lot about the Bible or do you know Jesus personally? And there is a world of difference. If we were dead and we were disobedient and we were depraved and we were doomed, and I noticed when I read it, I I stopped after saying these two words and I, 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 I sensed a response and, and I, I will tell you that the two, if, if not two of the most, the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture are, but God. When we were dead and doomed, but God. And look how he's described, I love this in this passage, verses 4 through 7. He's described as rich in mercy, I could stop here in illustrations of how rich is God. How rich is God? I mean, really, how rich is God? How rich is the, the richest man in the world? I don't even know. Somebody help me out. How many billions? Just guess. 47 billion, Lauren, thank you. Did you just look that up? Okay wonder what you were doing on your phone over there. I just <laughs> thought maybe she anticipated. Okay, but okay, let's, let's say that the richest man in the world decided to give you a billion dollars a year out of his wealth. How long would it be before he ran out? <laughs> 47 years. How rich, I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't even put it into words. How rich is God? It never runs out. And God being rich in what? Stuff? He's rich in that too. He owns it all. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead. I go back. I, I, I want, if you can do this, okay, for you, those of you who are believers in Christ, followers of Christ, and you may be babies, baby Christians, I mean, or, or in some of our oldest senior saints, but I want you, if you could, to go back to when God gave you the grace to have your eyes and your heart open, okay? Can you do that? I was 11 years old. I was raised in a church, but it was sometime during that time when I was 11 that when God opened my eyes and gave life where there was death, before that time, I didn't have a hunger for the Word of God. I read the Bible stories. I memorized the Bible stories. I could sing all of the children's songs. Climb, climb up, sunshine mountain. Heavenly breezes blow. Great theology. 
but I'm spiritually dead. You know what? Dead people don't have, they don't get hungry. I, I would just posit a question. If you never hung, if you never ever hunger for the word of God, listen, if you never ever hunger for the word of God, there may be seasons, I, I understand all of that in the growth, in our sanctification, but if you never hunger for the word of God, what might that say about your spiritual condition? Even as an 11-year-old, I, got, I was hungry to know God's word. And begin to study it on my own level. As I grew, that, became, that, that hunger became an ache. And even in seasons when I put aside the word, there was still that hunger, that ache for God's word. Before I was dead, now at 11 years old, I don't know that I'd plumbed the depths of sin, but I joyfully, I delighted in and lived in my sin, my, my 11-year-old selfishness. But when God gave me life, he caused me to be born again, I began to have an increasing hatred for sin and an increasing desire to live for the things of God. You, you know, someone asked a, a Christian, well, you, you still sin, don't you? Yeah. Well, what's the difference? Well, before I was saved, I used to run to my sin. Now that I'm a Christian, I run from my sin. I still get entangled, like the writer of Hebrews says. I still get entangled, but I'm running from it as fast as I can. Let's move on to the third thing. The third thing, well, we've gone through what you were before God made you alive. We've talked about how he, what he has done, and now let's talk about how he has done it. And we're going to stop with the grace alone. Next week, the Lord willing, will be sola fide, faith alone. But how did he do it? Grace alone. And let me just ask it again like this, another question that's, not, that's I hope, more than rhetorical. Are you trusting in your own works, your own righteousness, tipping the scales again to earn your approval with God, or are you, are you trusting in his grace alone? You know, it's interesting, not until verse 10 does this passage of Scripture tell us to do anything. The whole thing about what is what God has already done, and it's by grace alone. Look at it again. And most of you have memorized these verses, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved. So let me just remind you, if you try, listen, if you try to do anything to deserve God's favor, it wouldn't be grace. It would be what you've earned. It would be what God owes to you. Earned grace is an oxymoron. And yet, how many people, and I'm not talking about just out in other churches, but in good, solid evangelical churches, even Baptist churches, have subtly slipped into a wages or an earned grace mentality. Let me show you one way. 
Because I dare say that if you're like I am and you hear those words that I just said, if you're a believer in Christ, you're going to have a hard time buying that. Okay, let me just encourage you to go to this passage of Scripture, if you would. Luke chapter 18. Turn to Luke 18. Turn to in your Bibles or get your smart device and go to Luke 18. Luke 18, beginning with verse 9. Now, I know this is a Pharisee. It's a religious leader. This man is not necessarily a Christian, but I'm, I'm saying that this kind of attitude can subtly and sometimes not so subtly slip in to the church. You, you got it? Luke 18, starting with verse 9. And he also told his parable, parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Wow. And treated others with contempt. If you trust that you and yourself are righteous, that's going to be an outcome. You will treat others with contempt. He tells the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Some versions say a publican, not a republican, a publican. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, in some versions would rightly say, prayed to himself thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. If you're a part of this club that I've been a part of too many times, I, that I... So many times I hate to even admit it. Let's do admit it if we've ever slipped into this and realize how this short circuits our appreciation for God's grace. I call it the, this is the club, the name of the club, Lord, I thank God that I'm not like those people who thank God that they're not like other people. Did you catch that? That's not what the story says. The story says, I thank God I'm not like other people. And it's so easy to, isn't it? Come on, isn't it easy to point the finger? But then what do we do? We become by extension, a part of that other club. I thank God that I'm not like those people who thank God that they're not like other people. And most of the time, the carry way, the, the, the takeaway from this, uh, this story is, I thank God I'm not like that guy who condemned. When in reality, if you're not careful, you'll slip into the exact same thing. That's why... I hear this question. I, I've heard it just recently in the last week or so. This question that goes something like this. Why doesn't God save everyone?
I seldom hear. Never, maybe? The question, why would God save anyone? Folks, I was an adult in my 40s before I started studying these things loosely called the doctrines of grace that helped me to see that that's the question that I ought to be asking. Why? God knowing what we are without him, but God being rich in mercy and in grace. Folks, what do you and I deserve? Even now, what do we deserve? Hell. And if God were fair toward us, I hear people talking about being fair By the way, if you want fair, you know the answer to that, don't you? Today's the last day. Go down to about 10th and May. I'm glad that God is not fair. I'm glad that He is just. And that the riches of God's mercy come into play and that's why we don't get what we deserve hell and that's why the grace side comes in we do get what we don't deserve and that's heaven mercy withholds what we deserve grace gives what we don't deserve it's the old picture children children you've disobeyed your mom and dad mercy is when you don't get a spanking grace would be when Your dad takes you out for an ice cream cone. Students, those of you who drive, Lord help us. You're in your old jalopy. You're in a school zone. You're going 60. You get caught. You go before the judge. This is wild. Mercy would say, you're not paying the fine. Grace would be, let me give you the keys to a brand new car to replace the jalopy that you're driving. That's that's unbelievable. No, No one would do that. But God did when we deserve the opposite, when we don't deserve what we were created for, to know Him, to love Him. That's why it's grace alone. When I die, not one thing that I have done will earn one second in heaven. It is a gift. It comes by salvation through grace, by grace through faith, in Christ alone. Let me close with this. It's just another question, but it leads to the gospel. Why? I just shared my story when I was 11 years old, and I came under conviction, and, and, and I saw all of that. What made me, at 11, come under deep conviction? And I didn't have all of this spelled out. I just knew that I was helpless and that I was hopeless. What made me see that? 
What's, what is this sermon about today? Grace. Pure grace. It wasn't, and we had a very passionate pastor. I've told you before that A.D. Stuckey, he used to preach every day for at least an hour. You're lucky. By the time he was through, he was hoarse. He always wore a coat and tie. His, his coat was off. His tie was undone. His pants were dragging. I mean, if it were up to passion, that would have done it. It wasn't about passion. It, it wasn't about anything else. Like It was by God's grace that my eyes were open to see my sin. What caused me to believe in Jesus that he would save me? It was grace. What made me shortly after that want to tell my friends? I can remember I didn't know what to say. I just knew that there was a change, and I wanted to tell people about that change. What was it? It was the grace. It was the grace, as John Newton said, that taught my heart to fear. And then grace, my fears, relief. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And if there is anyone here today, this is the day, this is the hour. If your eyes are open by the grace of God to see the condition that you're in, but to see the, the wonder and the glory of Jesus Christ, then today is the day of salvation. Would you repent, turn away from your sin? Turn by faith to Jesus Christ. We're going to sing a song and we'll be dismissed in a minute after that, but I, I, I'm, I'll be here. And if, if that is something you need to talk about, you please come seek me out. Or there's Jim Jackson over there and others, Ike Burris over here, and we would be more than happy to talk with you about your eternal salvation. Please come. Let me lead us in a prayer, and then we'll sing a hymn, and then after that we will be dismissed. Father, I thank you. I didn't even touch, I didn't even scratch the surface, oh God. But I pray that somehow your people and those who are not yet your people, but soon will be by your grace, they would see a little bit more clearly how wonderful your grace really is. That we are saved by grace alone. Please now. Bring us from death to life. Those of us who are alive, help us to keep looking to the gospel of Jesus Christ to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us now as we affirm with a song and then as we go out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.